pray, shall we? Oh, Lord, you are beautiful. Everything about you is truth, life, love, judgment upon sin and evil and wickedness. For that, we are grateful. Lord, we think about what's going on in the world today, and Lord, we, we see, the, we see the, the pain, the suffering, and we know, Lord, it's not lost on you. And Lord, there are some even in our midst who are suffering as a result of, of witnessing these kinds of things. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to somehow look beyond this, to look to you, Lord, that Lord, one day you're going to make it all right. But between now and then, there's a war that's going on. And Lord, you called us as your people to engage in the battle, to run to the battle. And as it's been said, that we, as your army, we march on our knees. And so, Lord, I pray that today that you will remind us through your word of the battle, that you remind us, Lord, of the supernatural um, perspective that we need to have as we go into the world. Lord, I pray that you'll lead us and guide us and may your Holy Spirit be your teacher as we share some things today that may be a little bit weird to some of us. Lord, open up our eyes, open up our hearts, Lord, that we may obey you and we may understand more fully about who you are in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's Pentecost. This word Pentecost means 50th, literally. It's an ancient Jewish feast reminding the ancient Israelites of a couple of things. First, it is a feast of weeks. Seven weeks and one day past Passover, they were to bring an offering of wheat to the Lord in thanks for His goodness to provide for His people. Second, it was a reminder that God gave His people His law, beginning with the thundering of the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, a most powerful moment in their history. Can you imagine being there, hearing the voice from the mountain? Be a little quivering in the boots, wouldn't you think? Well, that's all well and good, though, if we're Jewish. But I don't know if anybody here that's Jewish. Anybody here Jewish? I, I, I don't see any Jewish hands. So what are we as New Testament, New Covenant, Gentile Christians doing, remembering Pentecost? Well, it was on this day about 2,000 years ago that Jesus began to build His church, engaging in His supernatural work. He sent His Holy Spirit in supernatural power to His people. Jews from all over the known world were in Jerusalem to celebrate this day-long feast. Jesus' disciples spoke in languages that they'd never learned before, fluent languages, proclaiming God's wonderful works to their fellow Jews. And on that day, about 3,000 souls were supernaturally added to the brand new church of Jesus Christ. His assembly, His ecclesia, literally the ones called out from the kingdom of sin and darkness and into His kingdom filled with glory and light. Now, I mentioned the word, the name supernatural several times in this message so far and even included supernatural in the title for a reason. Simply put, there is far more to Pentecost than people speaking in tongues and 3,000 people getting saved, as great as that is. 
But you know, our reality is that we celebrate the birthday of the church on Pentecost Sunday, and then we sort of put away, put it away till next year, like we do with Christmas and Easter, don't we? But today, I want us to do a little something a little different in relation to Pentecost that takes us far beyond a birthday celebration. I want to take us on a supernatural journey to cosmic levels surrounding the church of the Lord Jesus, beginning with Pentecost, to the highest echelons of spiritual warfare. Today we began a two-part series on Pentecost. Now, I had not planned on giving a two-part message on Pentecost, but the more I sought the Lord and the more I just saw how far-reaching this truth is, I just felt like I had to spread this out over a couple of weeks. So I hope you're okay with all that. Now, as you heard in our Body Lifetime, next week we're going to have our fifth Sunday fellowship. Great stuff if you like to eat. And also an incredible time if you like to have communion, the Lord's Supper with one another. We are to be doing this on a regular basis. You know, Jesus wants us to do that. And Paul said, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again as we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's also a time that we offer believers baptism. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been baptized as a follower of Christ, let me encourage you to come and and talk with me and we can make that happen, you know, next Sunday. And of course, we're going to dive into Pentecost part two after we set up the supernatural aspects of Acts chapter 2 today. Now, the Lord Jesus told us the greatest commandment. And what is that? It's to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our what? Our mind and our strength. And so today, I want us to love the Lord our God primarily with our mind. All right? You with me on this? Love Him with our mind today. And I'm going to ask you a favor, all right? I'm going to introduce you to some supernatural elements in relation to that first Pentecost, things that we in 21st century America probably have missed as we read our Bibles. I'm going to ask you to think with me about these things, things that are indeed incredible but foundational for a fuller understanding of Holy Scripture. Together, we are going to wade into some territory that may be a bit out of the ordinary. Some of this truth may sound very odd to you, especially those who have not been here very long, maybe for the first time today, because you don't know, who, you don't know me. You don't know where I'm coming from. You might be tempted to say that I'm going off the deep end, and I'm trying to take you with me. But before you tune me out and write me off, I'm going to ask you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to ask you to allow me to explain myself as I introduce these things to you. Let's wrestle with this. And what I'm about to share with you is absolutely grounded on God's inspired words, so no worries about that. In some ways, though, what I'm going to be sharing with you today is not anything new, really. But the way I'm going to say it, it might be new to you. See, when you see something, when you really see it, you can no longer unsee it. Isn't that true? You must deal with it. And so I'm asking you to come with me as we take a look at the supernatural view of Acts 2 in this week and also next week from a first century Jewish perspective, not 21st century American Gentile perspective. 
far different. Because again, in our 21st century American mindset, we have missed so much of those who first heard God's truth, what they take for granted. And so as we wrestle with these things today, let me invite you then, if you have questions, comments, whatever, write them down. Now, on your, in your bulletin, you know, we have a tear-off tab in that bulletin that we never use. And so if you have questions or comments, I'm asking you to use it today. Write those down. Put them in the offering basket at the end of the service. We take up our offering. And I want to deal with those questions and comments that you may have before we actually jump into the message next week. And if we need another week to do this, we can do this. I'm in no hurry, and I hope that you're not in a hurry as well. Because as we know, part of our mission statement is that we learn the Bible. And I'm convinced that what's contained in these messages over the next couple of weeks are going to equip us in a much better way to know the Lord, know His ways, and to understand and apply His truth. So are you ready to think with me? All right, good. I'm, I hear some verbal. That's good. That's good. That's good. So come and think with me. Let's get going here. And so out of the box, I want to let you know several of these ideas are not original with me, but they serve as a nice dovetail to what I've been saying for years. There's a guy named Dr. Mike Heiser. Maybe some of you have heard about him. He has made it a career out of seeing things that many of us have missed. But even he will say that his thoughts and his research are not original with him. His forte is to take what theological brainiacs, those who are conservative, those who believe that God's word is the inspired word of God and is authoritative for all of us, those guys, that camp, he's going to take those brainiac thoughts and things and bring them down to our level. But let me begin by reminding us that when we read and study scripture, context is everything. Would you agree with that? It's everything. And without it, we can make the Bible say anything that we want. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard people do this before. For example, I can prove to you atheism from Scripture. Did you know that? Because the Bible says these words, not just once, not just twice, but three times. There is no God. But what's missing here? <laughs> the context. See, Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 both say this. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So instead of proving atheism, it proves just the opposite, doesn't it? Now, reading the scripture in context is everything. But what do we mean by context? Now, most of us think, and rightly so, that reading scripture in context simply means that we read the verses before and after of the passage that we're trying to understand. This we must do, but this is where many of us simply stop. Allow me to expand on this context thing in just a little bit. When we read Scripture, we also need to keep in mind the kind of writing that we're engaging with. And the word is called genre. You may have heard that word before, genre. As with anything we read, we need to keep genre in mind. And we do that, don't we? Almost instinctively. You know, like, for example, when we read fantasy novels, we do not treat them as news, do we? You know, unless we're looking at fake news, <laughs> and then we see that's as fantasy novels, right? 
Also, there are some things we take literally and others we take figuratively. That's pretty much of a given, isn't it? The death and resurrection of Jesus, is that literal or is that figurative? It's literal. But you know, many believe that Christ literally died, but that he only figuratively rose from the dead. Spiritually, he rose from the dead is what they'll say. But if that is true, then we are all in trouble, every one of us. Because if Christ had not been bodily raised from the dead, then none of us will be forgiven of our sins. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so it's vitally important we understand that these things, the death and burial resurrection in Christ, is historical facts. Let me give another example about figurative versus literal language, the Scripture. You know, the Bible calls us sheep. I don't know about you, but when was the last time that you walked on all fours, ate grass, and went over a cliff because fellow sheep do that? <laughs> Yesterday? <laughs> when was the last time you, you bleated well? <laughs> Yesterday, too. Okay. Let me give you another example. When was the last time you saw trees clap their hands? You know, that's in the Bible too, right? So in a word, when we read Scripture, we read it and understand it according to the kind of writing it is. Figuratively, we see it figuratively. Literally, we see it literally. Facts are facts. Figures are figures of speech. Now, that's pretty straightforward thinking, isn't it? I mean, pretty obvious. But now let me introduce you to something that Mike Heiser is very fond of saying. We need to get the Israelite into our head. We need to get the Israelite into our head. I see some like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? In a sense, it's what I've been saying for, for many, many years, for a long time. Because as we know, a basic rule of Bible study is that the Bible was written for us. It was not written, finish it, to us. It was not written to us. It was written for us. The truth of God contained between the covers of the Bible is thousands of years old. It is steeped in a different culture than our culture is. It was originally written in different languages than English. You knew that, right? It addresses different contemporary problems than we address. For example, how many of us have ever seen Scripture mention a smartphone? or a truck, but the Bible does mention a car. You know, King James says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that the disciples were all with one cord. I know. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean a little car, does it? It simply means that they were all together. And so when Heiser says we need to get the Israelite into our head, what he means by that is that we need to take into account the worldview of the Scripture writers, and also to those to whom they wrote, and also to whom the prophets spoke to. Their worldview, we need to take that into account as well, because if we don't, we're going to miss so much. The worldview of Scripture writers includes things like their understanding of God and God's and truthful things as well. And all these things, many of these things are different from our own understandings. To the Israelite and those of us who are Christians, true Christians, we know that there is only one God. Isn't that true? 
one God. And I'm going to say it several times so we can all keep on the same sheet of music. To the Israelite, there is only one God, and His name is Yahweh. Yahweh. And please keep this in mind as we proceed. And by the way, in your English Bibles, in our English Bibles, when we see the the word capital L and then O-R-D in all caps, that is the Yahweh, that is the divine name that's translated into English. Now, part of the worldview of the Israelites when Scripture was written is the first idea I'm going to introduce to you right now. It is called cosmic geography. Cosmic geography. Now, what in the world does cosmic geography mean? So let's kind of break this down. When we think of geography, what do we think of? Borders, map, we think of landmass, think of places on map. We think of all those kinds of things, right? Territories. Now, we think of cosmic. What do we think of? Out there, don't we? We think of big picture. We think the heavens. We think the spiritual world. And so let's put them together. Cosmic geography. We think territories in the heavens. Spirit beings that influence and even control nations. This was their worldview. Now, Paul understood cosmic geography as well. These are entities as we Christians wrestle against. You may be familiar with the passage in Ephesians chapter 6 when Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but who do we wrestle against? We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, unseen forces that have influence over us and our affairs. And this is cosmic geography. Think Daniel as a tangible example. In chapter 10, we see this in action. In chapter 10, he told his story of a great conflict that he had. He had a vision, and he set himself to prayer and fasting, and he was greatly troubled by this vision, by this experience of his. And for three weeks, he sought an answer to his terrifying experience, so much so that Paul, or that uh, Daniel kind of relates himself as being maybe in, in consciousness and out of consciousness. This is a terrifying thing for him. There's no strength left in him. And Daniel's profound experience included this kind of thing in verses 10 and 11. And he says, Behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Can you imagine being Daniel? But what can we assume here? We can assume that the one who touched Daniel with his hand was an angel in the form of a man. The angel informed Daniel that for three weeks that he and Michael, identified as Israel's prince, was in serious hand-to-hand combat with the prince of Persia, an evil prince. This strong prince made life difficult for this angel that touched Daniel, and for Michael to deliver to Daniel the message, the answer that God wanted him to have. Until this angel informed Daniel of the spiritual battle, he had no clue of the intense fights between the prince of Israel and the prince of Persia. 
And then this angel even told Daniel, there's another prince coming, the prince of Greece. And so here it is, the nature of cosmic geography. Do you see it? Do you see the unseen? And it doesn't stop there. In the heavenly places, cosmic geography extends to actual territories on the ground, on the land as well. Let me give you one example. The true and living God, in their worldview, Yahweh has a nation and he has a piece of property, both named Israel. The very dirt of this patch of ground about the size of New Jersey today, God owns. And God promised to give this land to whom? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the land of Israel. Again, this is their worldview. Now, the story of Naaman is fascinating. Remember the story of Naaman, right? Naaman was a strong general from Syria. He was strong, yes, but he suffered from a horrible case of leprosy. In one of the raids Syria made on Israel, a young girl was taken captive, and she just happened to then become uh, assimilated into their household, Naaman's wife's servant. And she mentioned to her captors about Naaman, about his plight, and how there was a prophet in Israel that could heal him. Well, Naaman had a glimmer of hope with him, with this, and he took a lot of stuff to Israel as payment for his services in hopes that he could be cured of his leprosy. And he eventually found himself at the home of Elisha, the prophet of God. But Elisha just kind of blew him off, didn't greet him, didn't come to the door. He told his servant to go tell Naaman to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Well, that got Naaman really ticked. He was upset. I'm the great Naaman, and this Elisha, this prophet, wouldn't come out and talk to me? What's up with that? Well, the servants, the entourage that Naaman had with him, said, well, why don't you just go ahead and just try what he said to do? Well, he did. Reluctantly, he did. And so he dipped once, twice, three times, seven times. And what happened to Naaman after that? His skin was soft as a baby's behind. After he did what Elisha commanded. Naaman was so excited after this. He and his company went back to Elisha's house. And Elisha greeted him this time. And Naaman said this, catch this. He said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Catch it. So accept now a present from your servant. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I'm going to take none of this. Naaman urged him to take it, but Elisha refused. Well, what do you do with this? And, and Naaman thought, I know, I'm going to ask Elisha if I can take some dirt from Israel back to the land of Syria. Why is that? Why did he do this? Well, the short answer is that the only God in all the earth, in Naaman's viewpoint, lives on the patch of real estate called Israel. This is where he lives. Naaman wanted to, deliver, to literally take holy ground back to Syria. And so cosmic geography extends not only to the heavens, but also to the very earth as well. Cosmic geography extends to the land masses that the spiritual princes reside over and influence even to this day. 
You catch it so far? You know what I'm talking about? Are you with me on this? And you think about how evil this world is. You think about how seemingly all the nations are in lockstep with all these kinds of things that are going on. And I think to me anyway, as I, as I ponder this as well, there's more going on here than just heads of state meeting together. There's some spiritual stuff going on here. Could it be the princes that are over the nations, cosmic geographies in play here? I think there is. And so my question, is the Israelite in your head yet? Cosmic geography was something that sons and daughters of Israel and the people around them understood. They took it for granted. In their worldview, unseen principalities and powers were and are influencing nations in the seen world. Let me give you now another strange idea. Strange idea. A difficult one, but it's true nonetheless. But first, let me emphasize this once again. The Israelites took it for granted their worldview and what they wrote, they wrote from the position and the perspective that there is one God. His name is Yahweh, one God, the only creator, everlasting God is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is clear even in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. One Yahweh, that is his name. Now, let's move forward a little bit. We understand something else about Yahweh. He is Elohim. Elohim. Elohim in reference to Yahweh is as the creator of all things, seen and unseen. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Later on in Genesis 1, Elohim said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Nothing new here, right? We understand this. You are with me on it? Now let me once again try to get the Israelite into your head. In the mind of the Israelite, there's one Yahweh, but there is more than one Elohim. Many more than one Elohim. Let me let that settle in. I see some weird looks, and I expected that. How in the world, if the Israelite believed there's only one Yahweh, that they now believe there's more than one Elohim? Because their Bible says so. Let me demonstrate. And this is where Mike Heiser saw something he could not unsee. And now that you're seeing it, maybe you can't unsee it either. I can't unsee it. Elohim, as we know, is a Hebrew word. It's translated as God or even as gods in the Scriptures. In the Hebrew Bible, there are several kinds of beings that are named Elohim, and it's not Yahweh. Okay? You with me yet? Have you turned me off? Have you thrown me off overboard yet? Okay, not yet. Okay. Let me give you two examples of what I'm talking about. In Psalm 82, verse 1, we find these words in English. God, that is Elohim, has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, Elohim, he holds judgment. 
This is what it says. So what do we have here? Elohim, Yahweh, the one and only God, takes his place in the divine council. He takes his place in the midst of other Elohim. In the midst means there's more than one. And so what do we have here? We have two entities or two groups, as it were, one entity, Yahweh, and another group of Elohim in this passage. So what do we do with this? See, some people think that this council, divine council, is the Trinity, but it's not. It can't be because the rest of Psalm 82 talks about that Yahweh is calling the other Elohim on the carpet for siding with wickedness. So we can't be members of the Trinity. It's got to be other Elohim. So what do we do with this? There's an answer. There's a reason. There's a reason. Let me give you another Elohim moment. King Saul, the first king of Israel, he had a problem. Yahweh was not answering his prayers. He needed some guidance. He needed a quick. He was desperate. And so he went to the town called Endor, and he found somebody there. It was a medium. It was a witch, a person who could call up the dead spirits. He went and consulted her. Now, as we know, that's a no-no with Yahweh, right? Yahweh says, uh-uh, you can't do this. Not allowed. But he did it anyway because Saul reasoned, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. So he went there. And so let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 28, 13 and 14. And Saul asked this witch of Endor. He says, what do you see? And this woman says, I see a god coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what's his appearance? She said, an old man is coming up and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew this God, labeled as God by this witch of Endor, was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. The one she saw was obviously Samuel, but she labeled him Elohim. What do we do with these? What's going on here? Heiser's description, as he's been doing all this research, is very helpful here. He says, Elohim is a member of the unseen spirit world. Whether it is Trinity, whether it is members of a divine council, or whether it's members of departed spirits. All of these are Elohim because they're members of the unseen world. See, we think that when we think of Elohim, there's only one God, there's only one Elohim, and it's all of these characteristics, all of these attributes. Well, Heiser's saying, well, we've got to understand a little bit more here because if the Bible, the inerrant word of God says that a departed spirit is an Elohim, if a member of the divine council is Elohim and Yahweh is Elohim, then we've got to change our view. We've got to change our understanding. And so I, I, I like that idea. I like what he says here, that, you know, any member of the unseen world, spirit world, spirit beings are Elohim. And so we can say it like this. Though Yahweh is an Elohim, he is, there is no Elohim like Yahweh. 
Okay, make sense? Yahweh, only one creator God. He is classified as Elohim. And there's all kinds of other Elohim below him, but still classified as Elohim. Make sense? No Elohim are on the same level as Yahweh, even though Yahweh himself is an Elohim. He alone is the creator, and he created the other Elohim. Okay, makes sense? Spirit beings. We are familiar with the term spirit beings, but the Scripture does classify them as Elohim. Now, I know this is weird. We've not heard this before. But again, if God's Word is inerrant, which it is, and Scripture writers label these as Elohim, then we've got to change our understanding of what Elohim means. And I think this is what Heiser's tried to help the church, including myself, to understand here. But there's a reason why we're doing this, and we need to go there. So let's let this settle as I review our points. First, in the world of the Israelite, cosmic geography is a thing. There are spiritual powers and entities and principalities that even we as Christians wrestle against. Spiritual geography. Second, there's only one creator God revealed in the Old Testament as Trinity, who is Elohim. His name is Yahweh. But there are other Elohim as well. So we have one Yahweh, one Godhead, many Elohim. Okay, you with me? So why is this important? Glad you asked. <laughs> These things help us to understand the frontal assault of the final battle. And Pentecost is central. See, this is one of the several divine campaigns of the spiritual war. One of them was at the cross when Jesus cried out, paid in full. He died. He rose again. And he became victor over death. God predicted the war itself in the Garden of Eden when he promised a redeemer. But the warfare really began to show itself at the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, Genesis 10 and 11. So let's sum up the story. In Genesis 10, we have what is commonly called the Table of Nations, Genesis 10. After the flood, God repeated the command to Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. We remember the story, don't we? God's mandate to people was for us to fill the earth and subdue it, to make the world like Eden. God wanted his image bearers to go to the ends of the earth and represent him well. Did that happen? Nope. <laughs> Between Genesis 4 and 9, there was nothing but unfaithfulness on our part. Mankind was extraordinarily wicked. And so God judged the world with a flood. And after the water went away and the land dried out, God repeated to Noah the command he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. But did they go to the end of the earth as his faithful representatives? Nope. In Genesis 10 and 11, we see that the people of the world were divided up into 70 nations. We're going to see that number again, 70. But before the division, there was the tower, Tower of Babel. 
They wanted to hang out together and to make a name for themselves with a city and a tower reaching up to heaven. Why? So that they would not have to go out to the ends of the earth and thereby obey God. Who'd want to do that? Well, what did God do about this? He did two things, didn't he? He confused their language so they could not understand one another. Then what did he do? He scattered them. Seventy nations. He divided them up. But let's not forget, there's cosmic geography at work here. Because he divided them up according to the sons of God. And we're going to talk about the sons of God a little bit later. After our, after our series in 2 Corinthians is over, we're going to talk about the gospel according to Moses. But for now, know that God scattered the nations and he placed Elohim, princes, over the nations to influence them and control them like we saw in Daniel's vision. Again, cosmic geography at work here. So why did God do this? Why did God take the nations, put Elohim over them, scatter them out of the, to the ends of the earth to advance his plan, to fulfill his purpose? Well, how did he do that? In a sense, what did God do? He started over. He promised to redeem us from our sin. Remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled and the Lord basically said, I'm going to send a redeemer. I'm going to clean up the mess that you made. And eventually we discover three things about this redeemer. And Heiser sums up this nicely in his book, Reversing Herman. I highly recommend the book. It's wonderful. He says the coming of Jesus as Yahweh incarnate does three things. Number one, he reverses the curse of death brought upon humanity by the sin of Adam. The second thing the Redeemer will do, Yahweh incarnate, he's to undo our depravity. And what is God doing with his people? He's making his people into God's holy people. And third, it meant that he was going to restore the divine order of heaven and earth. Remember the prayer that we prayed earlier today, the, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. He says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These things are going to happen, and these things are happening now because the Redeemer has come. But the Lord declared our utter sinfulness when he saw that our wickedness on earth was great and every intention of the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually. And that was before the flood. After the flood, here's what God's assessments of us. He said this about us. He said, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. <laughs> we have not changed before the flood and after. We are wicked. We are evil because of the sinful nature we all have. So what to do? What to do? What would God do about this? What did God do about this? Enter Genesis 12 and on. God was going to create a nation through which he would produce the Messiah, undoing all the damage that Adam and Eve started, that they did through their rebellion. And we know the story, don't we? What did God do? God called out a couple, barren couple. They didn't have kids. Abram and Sarai called them out from the Arab Chaldees, Babylon, called them out. Again, they had no kids. Sarai was past childbearing years. But God created in Sarai the ability to have a child. And at age 90 
lady, age 90, Isaac was born. And then through Isaac came Jacob, and through Jacob came Judah, and through Judah came Jesus, the one to sit on David's throne, Yahweh incarnate. At the right time, Jesus was born. Perfect man, God in the flesh, proclaiming the kingdom of God. As we will see next week, Jesus declared himself to be the Messiah by the things he did and by the things he said and by what evil spirits said to him and about him. Jesus cast out demons and at one time sent out a group of 70 disciples and gave them authority over what? Over demons. Mark that number. Jesus led his 12 apostles to a place called Caesarea Philippi where he asked them a question, who do you say that I am? He led three of his apostles to a high mountain and was transfigured before them. His glory just, just, just displayed all over him. And he died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Now, what do all these things have to do with one another? These are declarations of war in the unseen realm. And every one of us who follow Christ as Lord and Savior has an extremely vital part to play in this cosmic war, far greater than we could ever imagine. You think you're just kind of a basic, run-of-the-mill person? No, no, if you're a Christian, no, no, you're not. You have an extremely important part to play in this warfare. One day the war will be over, and Jesus will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And next week, we will see the launch of his church to fulfill the words that he said at Caesarea Philippi, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. But until that time, the battle rages. So today, Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the birthday of the church of Jesus Christ, and he sent his spirit to advance his mission to have his people engage in three things, and three things only. And those of us who've been around for a while, we know what these three things are, don't we? To evangelize the lost, to disciple the saved, to live together in love and unity. This is what we are all about. This is what he gave every church to do, every Christian to do, to be engaged in kingdom work. And all of us who know Christ as our Lord and Savior are to be involved in this, in these three things. So my question for all of us is simply this. Are you? Are you involved in these things? As followers of Jesus, the captain of our salvation, we have no choice. The day we began to follow Jesus was the day he enlisted us in his army to do kingdom work. And by the way that we live, we're either advancing the victory of the king, or we are retreating the one way or the other. There is no middle ground. 